It's 9 o'clock, WPSL, Port St. Lucie. And it's time for We Are Just Christians, live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie, with your hosts, Mike Smith and Gary Jones. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to We Are Just Christians. Glad you tuned in today to the show. We appreciate it very much. We Are Just Christians will be on now for the next hour, taking your calls, comments, questions, and talking about spiritual matters of all sorts, whatever is on your mind. My name is Mike Schmidt, and I'm the preacher and one of the elders of the Church of Christ here in on Savona Boulevard. With me, as usual, is Gary Jones. How you doing, Gary? I'm I'm here this morning, Mike. We're rushing around a little bit behind our usual schedule, but we're doing pretty good, and we're glad that you're with us. In just a moment, I'm going to give you the number to reach us or some contact information to reach us if you'd like to have a conversation with us here on the air or ask a question, make a comment, whatever whatever you may like. I'll give you the way to get a hold of us here on WPSL. So you can join in the show. It always makes it better when people join in the show, not just us talking for a while. You may think that your comment or question is something that, you know, nobody cares about. But I can assure you from some experience doing this that that's not the case at all. That whatever is on your mind is probably on somebody else's mind for sure. And so, well, Ray at the station says he cares. So I'm glad that you care there. So anyway, uh, we appreciate him, his help very much and all the people there at WPSL. But we mostly appreciate you for listening today. And if you'd like to call in, you can reach the show at 772-340-1590. 772-340-1590 is the number here in Port St. Lucie. And uh, you can call the station. They'll patch you through to us, and we'll have a conversation. And I say conversation. If you just want to come on and ask a question, that's fine. Uh, I, I personally like it when you stick around just for a minute and, and uh, follow. I can follow up. Make sure part of that's for me and Gary because I know how easy it is for us to hear something, maybe not either remember it correctly or not really get the point you're making. So if you stick around for a minute, you can clarify. And we'll give you a chance to clarify whatever you want to say or correct us. And if you disagree, you have a chance to say so. The show is not about arguing. It's about maybe possibly disagreeing. That's fine. We don't mind that a bit. But it's not about arguing, making fun of somebody, you know, proving yourself right. It's not about that. It's about learning, about growing. And if we disagree and can show you that in this in the Bible, we'll try to do that. And you can do the same thing with us. And we promise we're going to give you the last word on whatever subject we discuss. We're going to give you the last word so you can finish off what you're saying and not feel like you're being used or put upon. So those are kind of the ground rules here, and we are just Christians. I hope that's satisfactory. If you have a suggestion, that's one thing something you can call in about. Maybe you don't think we treat our callers fairly. Maybe you don't think we deal with things right. That's fine. Just let us know about that, and we will be glad to talk with you about it. 772-340-1590. Now you can reach the show couple of other ways. One way to interact with us this morning while we're on the air even is to text us. Gary and I both have our phones here and we can text we can text back and forth sometimes. We can do a better job than others, but we'd be certainly be glad to, to uh, uh, respond to you this morning one way or the other by text. And the two numbers are my number, Mike's number is 772-260-6120, 6120. 772-260-6120. Gary's text number, 772-260-6220, is Gary's number, 772-260-6220. And you can feel free to text either one, not only today during the show, but you can certainly text us during the week. People have, and we don't mind that at all. Get a hold of us for whatever might be on your mind. And we appreciate that. We will do our best to respond in some fashion, either today or uh, even during the week at those two text numbers. There's some other contact information. Maybe you'd like to write an email, simple email address. Can't respond on the air this morning to email, but we can respond during the week. Seven seven. I mean, excuse me, email. <laughs> JustChristians at att.net. Just, been, been a slow morning, hasn't it, Mike? Yeah, oh, yes. <laughs> 772, there I go again. Uh, JustChristians at att.net. JustChristians at att.net is the email. We'll it, talk it, you. It gets worse as you get older, Mike. Really? Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, that's good to know. I appreciate that very much. It's encouraging. <laughs> um, but anyway, I got too many things going on in my brain. It's uh, swirling around here. But those are some ways you get a hold of us. Now, this show, in case you haven't heard the show before, 
is centered around our presuppositions, whatever you want to call them, our, our framework here, Gary and I, that we believe that the New Testament is, is a God's word and is a guide for our life, both personally and for the church. And we believe the Bible is, um, is obviously relevant to today. We don't have to make it relevant. The Bible is relevant because it was given to us by God. Now, the, it was set in another culture, in fact, several different cultures in the ancient world, and we can br- but we can bring what's known from that into the 21st century. And so we're here to recreate the first century church and first century Christianity, that's personal Christianity, in the 21st century where we now live. And so that's what this show is about. So if you call in with a comment or question, whether you in, intend it for this way or not, we're going to try to understand that question in light of what we, we think the Bible says about it. And we're going to give you a Bible answer, if we can, to whatever comment or question or Bible response. Now, now you may agree or not agree with that, uh, that response. You may say, well, you're wrong either because you don't think the Bible applies, or you may say, well, you're wrong about what you say about the Bible. Either one of those responses is perfectly legitimate, and we'll, we'll deal with those and talk about that, and perhaps you have a good point to make. So, But that's the, that's the thrust of the show. It's, it's taking the words of Christ and his apostles and bringing them by principle and by, by actuality here in the 21st century. And, and I think the thing that people misunderstand, they think that, that uh, you know, religion's about church. Well, it is, but religion's about all of life. To be a true Christian involves it's everything that you do. And the trouble that we have in Christianity, a lot of people perceive, is there's too many Christians that are just Christians when they go to church on Sunday. When they leave the building, they revert back to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, their other personality, you know, and talking and dealing with people. And therefore, they become hypocrites. We're against that. And we don't believe that's the way it should be. Now, we got a call. Jerry, if you hang on just a second, let me finish my thought and we'll get to you. But... Uh, we believe it's that it's, as one person says, all of Christ for all of life. I think that's a fairly good slogan, if I understand it correctly, that it's everything that, that, that scriptures teach about Jesus Christ, and then it's for all of our life that we have to practice it. And so it takes time and thought and process. It's a long process. We're here to, to work on that with you, help you with that. So if that's of interest to you, stay tuned. If not, stay tuned and see if, if, we, if you can... Uh, gain something, or maybe you'd like to call in and say, that's, uh, that's garbage, let me tell you why. I'd love to have that call, Gary. I, I love to talk to people about that kind of thing, because uh, I think it's valuable to all of us to, to hear the other side of things. All right, Jerry, are you there? We got a call this morning. What's going on, Jerry? Gary, uh, I was wondering, there was a special on last week about uh, Kennedy, the Kennedy assassination. Uh-huh. I was wondering, they said they got a requiem mass for uh, John F. Kennedy, and I was only nine years old when this happened, and I wondered if you could maybe Google or and just uh, explain to a layman what a requiem mass is, and I'd like to listen off air. Now, be now okay. hold on a minute, Jerry, because I'm not catching what you're saying. What kind of mask? Uh, what is it that... I'm not, um, are you still there? Gary hung up. Gary, did you catch the, what kind of mask he was talking about? Some kind of mass, M-A-S-S. Mass. Okay, I thought he was saying mask. Pardon me, Jerry, my hearing isn't the greatest but sometimes. I didn't, I didn't catch the word. Uh, well, uh, I, I'm, and I probably then, therefore, I'm not going to, I'm going to have a hard time. Uh, call, if you would, Jerry. Call back and at least tell Ray at the station there what kind of mass you're talking about so we can answer you more specifically about that. And uh, we'd, I'd be glad to answer your question, but I, I just couldn't catch it here on the phone. Okay, Jerry, are you, are you there right now? Okay, he can, uh, maybe he can tell Ray or... or, or um, right. The term was Requiem. Requiem, okay, I've got you now. Q-U-I-M, uh, Requiem Mass. Okay, I just, yeah, I, I know that term. I just couldn't, it was my fault, I just couldn't hear you very well. Uh, requiem, so, requiem Mass. Mass. Okay, requiem. A, a Requiem Mass. Yeah, and did, you said it correctly, yes. Requiem, yeah, well, Requiem, Requiem, it's, it's Latin. 
Um, and it, it's a mass for the dead is what it is. And so there are different kinds of mass worship services in the Catholic Church. And a, a requiem mass is one for the souls who are, dis, are deceased, a particular form of that uh, requiem of, that, of the mass. And, and you know, in general, uh, now, see if I can back up enough to make this make sense to you. And I, I, I as you well know, I am not a Roman Catholic, and I, but, and, but my family is my mother, my father's family were all devout. European Roman Catholic, so I grew up a little bit around Roman Catholicism. And I will say this, and Gary feels the same, well, we have zero interest in misrepresenting what other people believe and practice. Uh, that's not helpful, useful, or even correct or right to do. So I have zero interest in mis misrepresenting what people believe. Uh, so I want to represent and say what I think is true. Now, that doesn't mean I have to agree with it or, or applaud it or think it's great, just because people believe certain things or practice certain things, I don't have to agree or whatever with that. Uh, but I, I don't want to misrepresent it. So I'm going to try to give you, in talking about any particular religious belief of any particular group of people, some kind of um, accurate representation, whether we agree with that practice or not. Now, um, the Catholic Church believes that the church officials, the church itself as an institution, is the only means of God dispensing grace to the world. And so it's only through church officials that God's mercy, forgiveness, grace, whatever it is, can be dispensed to people in the official services of the Catholic Church. And so there are seven sacraments of the Catholic Church whereby they dispense this grace of Jesus Christ, in their view, to people, to Roman Catholics. There's marriage, there's... Uh, baptism, extreme unction, which is practiced for the dead. Uh, there is communion or uh, the Eucharist. And I, I just can't think of the others off the top of my head. But anyway, this is the, uh, th those are some of the functions. So when a per Catholic is dying or, or is dead, they would have, probably have extreme unction, which would mean that's where the priest comes along and to either puts holy water or says a prayer or blessing over the body or as the person's dying so that person can be saved. Now, um, when... when Is that uh, what's popularly referred to as the last rites? Last rites. I think okay. that's what... Yes, yeah. thank you, Gary. That's that's uh, exactly right. And so there's this... But, but at a Catholic funeral... Well, well, now then let's back up a little further. Just don't get to the funeral yet. Um a mass is not a worship service like we have here this morning. We're going to have here this morning, where we come together as Christians, we sing together in praise to God, encourage one another. We we uh, take the Lord's Supper, we pray together, uh, we do those things together as a, as an offering to God, and then also the benefit of that is to stimulate and provoke us together. So the worship service of the Church of the New Testament is to do two things, is to honor and worship God, but it's also to encourage and strengthen, stimulate those who are Christians to better, more faithful service, to call their mind back to, to their duty and spiritual things. Now, that's what the worship services of the New Testament church were like. The Catholic church, as it developed over the centuries after Christ, which is many centuries later, developed a different kind of worship service called a mass, and I'm not sure the exact derivation of that word off the top of my head. But what it is is a re-crucifixion of Christ, Gary, where the blood, the blood and, the, and the flesh are offered up again for the sins of the people. And so that's why they say that this fruit of the vine in the, uh, what, we call, what we here call the Lord's Supper communion, they would call it the Eucharist, this fruit of the vine literally, actually becomes the blood of Jesus Christ in a process called transubstantiation. And they believe that the bread, the, the unleavened bread that we use, for example, which is a memorial of Christ's flesh, his body, and of the, la, of the, of the new covenant, they believe that that literally becomes, it's, it's a remembrance, and do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. They believe it actually is a re-crucifixion of the body of Christ, so that your sins are actually forgiven right there. We, we don't, the Bible does not connect 
the taking of the Lord's Supper with the forgiveness of sins, per se. So, therefore, we don't take, well, no, I say we. I, I believe the New Testament, I don't think the New Testament teach, people do a lot of things when they come to whatever church it is. I'm sure you can find people that come to this church who don't believe or practice things correctly. That's, that's not the point I'm making. But the New Testament doesn't teach that the Lord's Supper has some efficacy to take away your sins. So if you've committed sins during the week, they're not taken away during the Lord's Supper by, by eating the bread and drinking the fruit of the vine. Nor does, it, nor does the Bible say that you can't take it unless you have gone to confession and confessed all your sins and your, all your sins are already forgiven. That's what the Catholic Church teaches. Some people still believe that kind of thing. It's a remembrance of the crucifixion of Christ, which is to call you back to better service and to honor Christ. Now, the Catholics, though, go through a process during this mass of re-crucifying the body and blood of, with the body and blood of Christ, reminds and again me, for the forgiveness of sins. Reminds me almost of the Old Testament sacrifices that had to be done year after year. Yes, they, exactly right, because the Catholic worship service and much of the Catholic religion is based upon a, a recreation of some of the things in the Old Testament. For example, the, the Catholic priesthood itself. There is no mention in the New Testament about Jesus or the apostles of any kind of special priesthood that certain men are qualified to by doing different things. Most notably, people today would say, well, they're celibate. There's nothing in the New Testament about that at all. That recreation of the Old Testament priesthood was made by the Catholic Church centuries after the New Testament. The New Testament talks about offices like apostle, teacher, pastor, and so forth in Ephesians chapter 4, not about priests and nuns and all of those archbishops and cardinals and all those kind of things. Those offices are completely outside the frame of the New Testament. Now, that doesn't bother a Roman Catholic uh, theologian or Roman Catholic because they say, well, that's fine. We don't believe in following just the New Testament. If you look in the Catholic Catechism, which I have many at my house, several, it will specifically say in big, bold letters that the New Testament is not sufficient as a guide in practice, or the Bible in particular, is not sufficient as a guide for practice for, for religion. They say it takes the Bible plus tradition to know what to do. Well, the tradition is the accumulation of customs that the Catholic councils and churches have, acu have accumulated over the centuries since Christ came that tell us what to do. So it doesn't bother an un a knowledgeable Roman Catholic that when I say things like that, that their practices are not found in the Bible, that doesn't bother them because they don't believe that that's even necessary to go find it in the Bible. Does that make any sense? Yes. So I'm not slandering somebody. I'm simply telling you what they believe and what's openly acknowledged in their writings and teachings. Now, that bothers someone like me, though, and I, you know, that's one of my, my presuppositions. I believe that we should follow the New Testament, and the New Testament alone is sufficient to guide us. In, in teaching. This is one of the biggest differences in the religious world between what we would call Catholics and, and Protestants, although Protestants really waffle on this, in my opinion. I'm not a Protestant either. But they waffle on this because they think you should follow whatever the Holy Spirit tells you today. You know, you got the Bible, and then you got what the Holy Spirit told you this morning over breakfast as you prayed. You got that to go on. So they, they believe in waffling on this, or, or that the Holy Spirit somehow illuminates everybody in a different gospel, depending on who they are, by teaching them different things each week. Now, that's a whole other show, Gary. But, but the point well, maybe is... Maybe more than one. More than one show, but we're not going to go into that. We're talking about this now. Now, the point I'm getting at here, then, so the Catholic Mass is, is kind of a, a... There are several different kinds of Masses. Gary, Jerry mentioned the Requiem Mass. And so it is... Uh, I've sat through a couple of these over the years, my grandmother's being one, some others, and it's a very elaborate ceremony. It's changes over time as far as some of, the, some of this. But basically, it's the consecration of this person's body and a deliverance of the body to the ground and the idea that they can, with holy water and incense. When my grandmother was buried, or when, I remember sitting there in the, near the front row, and I was, you know, what was I, 21, 22 years old. And, and the priest and his followers, they marched up and down the aisle with incense and gold censers and all the elaborate clothing, and they walked and around and around the casket with incense to drive away the evil spirits from the, from the room and from the casket and uh, sprinkled holy water on that before they went out. And then they go to the cemetery and they, uh, you know, do the same kind of thing again at the cemetery. 
So this is a, a and, and, um, and during that process, it took about two hours, I think. They had a they had a celebra- celebration of the mass with candles, the priest taking the communion. He had everybody who wanted to take the bread come up, and he put the bread on their tongues, and then he took drank the wine, as it were. And, and that's how they did funerals back then. And so this is the requiem mass. Now, since John F. Kennedy was a Roman Catholic, then he um, they went through this kind of requiem mass for him, and I was. Uh, but I'd like to make the point. You're pretty old, Jerry, because I was 11 when this happened. And, and you know, if you're uh, nearly as old as me, you're pretty old. Anyway, well, go ahead. Basically, I was uh, I was a sophomore in high school at that time, so, and I can't. I remember it being announced over the PA system. Uh huh. But I did want to point out, Mike, we can find none of these activities, either by example or description, in the New Testament. Right. Yeah. This is. Um, that's the disappointing thing about this, and I have to, we have to come on here so often and sound so critical and so negative. I don't mind it in a way, but I don't want people to get the impression that that's all there is to what Gary and I believe is something that's negative toward uh, other well, the, denominations or religions. But I can't sit here, neither, and Gary's not going to sit here and act like that all these things are just fine as long as you sincerely believe them, it must be good. We don't believe that sincerity makes something truthful or correct. It certainly doesn't justify what people do just because they're sincere about it. They may be sincere, and I don't say that Catholics are insincere. The point I'm making is I think these things are incorrect. They're wrong. It's false teaching because it's not found in the Bible. Now, I don't think that's going to change many people's minds in practical terms, but hopefully it can have some effect on a few people that when you go back and look at some of these um, some of these customs early on, you'll see that some of these kind of well look, Gary, to be fair about this, early Christians did have a kind of sometimes a service of when people died, just like we do. When someone even people who don't believe in God, when someone dies, they very often have some kind of a memorial service. Either with a body or without a body, they get together, they remember the dead one, they talk about it. Uh, sometimes they pray, even if they're not really particularly religious the rest of the time, they pray then. I've been called to do funerals for people, and I'm sure that in a lot of these cases, Gary, the only time they want somebody like me around, from my experience, is they want a preacher around when somebody gets, when somebody is born, I mean when they get married, I should say, and when they die. And they otherwise, they don't want anybody like me around messing with their life. And so they, they call me in to do this, and, and that's it. And so, yes, people early on in Christianity did have services, from we can tell, outside the Bible, when people died. The question is whether these are, go back to New Testament or apostolic times. In Acts 2.42, it says about the early, earliest disciples that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching in the breaking of bread and in prayers. They continued steadfastly, not in the traditions of the church, or the, they didn't continue steadfastly in the uh, post-apostolic Antonicene Fathers tradition. Okay, you can read about that. They continued steadfastly in what? The apostles' teaching. Doctrine, but, and, the, and also... Doctrine. And that's right. what we try to do here. And also in Romans 2, Paul says, basically telling them... Uh, that he's going to look to that in the day of judgment in verse 16 of Romans 2. He says, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. He's pointing to the gospel that he's teaching them. Just as John 12:48, which we've quoted a lot before, Jesus says, my words will judge them in the last day. So that last day judgment is going to depend on what, Paul, what the apostles wrote and what Jesus said. Which are the same thing, right? When you when you look at some of these encyclopedias about religious history, you'll see that that you're talking about fourth and fifth centuries, five and six hundred years after Christ came. That some of these practices, like a requiem mass, well, I don't think it's even called that then, but some of the earliest ideas of a of these services, and of course, I don't even think they were having masses back then. 
that's my point, just because you can find early Christians having some kind of a service, memorial service for the dead, doesn't mean it's like a requiem mass today with the re-sacrifice of Christ and the incense and the special clothing and the, all of that kind of stuff. You, that's a that's a whole nother and uh, breed just, of cat just, that we got today. Right. Just because the encyclopedia says uh, Peter was the first pope doesn't make Peter in reality a pope. No, and doesn't he, and it certainly doesn't mean that a church should have a pope. Yes, that's another whole issue altogether. So, so this is the whole point. Now, uh, when I say I say all those things I mentioned before, it makes you sound awfully critical, and and I guess we can certainly live with that being thought of as being critical because I. We should be critical of things that have added to the Bible. And when Jesus says, don't add or subtract from my word, and there's a curse upon those who add or subtract from the word of God in the book of Revelation and other places. Uh, so we need to be careful about that. When we add what God, to what God says along the way, we are, we are walking on very dangerous ground. So this appeal, though, can only be made to people who say, you know what, I, I would like to follow uh, just what the Bible says, understand it as best I can. And... Here's the benefit of that. It's not just being regressive. The benefit of that appeal of trying to go back to the Bible and find it, find what was done there is because it really is the only true source of unity that we can ever have as Christians. If we have any hope of any having any kind of unity as believers, it's, it's only on the basis that we could all agree, if Christ indeed is Lord, that we would follow his teaching. And he appointed 12 men and then a couple of successors like Matthias and Paul to come along and, and be apostles. And he said he would bless them and we are to follow the apostles' teaching. And so we can go find out what they did. He didn't say, and then follow the, the, the descendants of the apostles and the successors to Peter. All that, he didn't say to do any of those things. He put his apostles. And Peter isn't even... Uh, he, he not given headship over the apostles. He's not the first pope. None of those things. In fact, Peter, not only was he married in the New Testament, because Jesus healed his mother-in-law, but he also was the one, of, one of the few apostles that was openly rebuked by Paul uh, because he was a hypocrite. And so you have all these other problems with this idea that we should be following what the popes or other people say. And yet, if we want to have unity, if indeed Christ is Lord, every Christian should agree that we should be able to follow what he and his apostles said to do and to believe. And if we can ever call people back to that standard, just the apostles' teaching from the New Testament, now we have a chance to have unity. It would require, yes, unfortunately, all these denominations laying down their pet beliefs and agreeing only to follow the Bible for what they practice and what they do. And, and I know that's a tall order, given the extent of this falling away but that would have to take, take the, place. The, the point I'd like to make, Mike, is that this idea that we should, that we should hold to the Scripture is, is not something that we made up. It's, it's basically throughout the New Testament. One of the things yes. that Paul says in Galatians 1, beginning in... In uh, verse 12, it says, For I neither, he talking about the gospel, let's go back to verse 11, but I made known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus gave Paul those revelations. He wrote it down. He says so in the Ephesian, I believe it's the Ephesian letter, he wrote it that they might understand Ephesians it. Ephesians 3, 3 through 5. He wrote it down, whereby when they read it, they can understand and his knowledge of the mystery. So this is, this is the pattern that God set down. We're supposed to read this, understand it, and do it. And just like Jesus said in John 12, 48, these are his words that he passed on to the apostles. That's the word that's going to judge us in the last day. So what's important? Is it what you think God wants you to do or what God said he wants you to do? Right. So here, and he, you have the apostles talking about this very issue. The, the, as I mentioned before, uh, the Catholic Church, and you can read this, just go, just go on the Internet today and talk in, type in doctrine of development. I'm not trying to slander somebody or make something up. I have no interest whatsoever in doing that. But having read about this, the Catholic Church teaches a, what's called the doctrine of development. 
And they say that in the New Testament, all you have is the embryo of the true church, the true teaching. And that this was only the embryo, and then the whole creature was to be revealed later through the church councils, popes, cardinals, Holy See, that over, over the centuries, the true will of Christ would be revealed to those men in those councils. This is called the doctrine development. So you can't use the New Testament, they would say, because it's only the seed or the embryo form. All right, well, think about it. That sounds, that sounds good. Sounds very intellectual. Sounds very progressive. All right, well, let's... What about Jude 3? Let's just read the New Testament. Yeah, go ahead. Read that. That's how I was uh, going to go there. But read beloved, it while I was uh, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all. Oh, the delivered. faith, that, that which must be believed, was once for all delivered to the saints. And that word once there, Gary, is once for all is one word. It's three words in English, but in Greek it's one word, hopox. And it's a fairly unique word. It means one time only. It doesn't mean, you know, once upon a time, which can happen over and over again. It means once only. You it's a point that he says in the book of Hebrews, for, for man to die once, or for once for man to die. I've, you only I've, die one time. I've often wondered why those words weren't translated once for all time. Delivered. Well, it just means, it, it just means in, in general, it's, it was an, un, not an uncommon word in Greek. It means to happen once. You, yeah. you know, it's that kind of thing. A person gets born once. And so uh, that's, and it was used for lots of different things, like, but it's used about three or four times in the New Testament. So the, the gospel was delivered once, not repeatedly down through the centuries to different, to, uh, in different forms. Notice this, though, in Acts chapter 20. Here's the Apostle Paul speaking to the Ephesian, the elders of the church at Ephesus that he had formed, had started some years before. He says in verse 27 of Acts 20, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, I've told you what you need to know. You don't have to wait till later to get the new revelation. But he goes on to say, Therefore, since I've told you the whole counsel of God, as an apostle, you take heed to yourselves as elders and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, which was the church at Ephesus, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For know this, that after my departure, Paul saying my death, that word exodus, the word exodus there, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, you elders, not sparing the flock. For among your own selves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn you every day and night with tears. Now, does that sound like Paul tells these men, I'm going to be gone, but just hang on because there's more development of doctrine to be had here coming along. More of these doctrines I've taught you in the embryonic form are going to be developed over the centuries. Is that Paul's attitude? No. He says, I've taught you the truth about what God Christ came to teach, and I want you to be careful because even from among your the own eldership, even from among you leaders, is going to come perversity, teaching wrong things as after I'm gone. And guess what happened? After Paul passed away and the other apostles died, there was a falling away from the truth. This is called, this is what Paul calls it in, um, in 1 Timothy chapter 4. There was no development of doctrine the New Testament wanted to have, Gary. This, there was a falling away from the truth. He says in, in, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1, now the Spirit says expressly or very clearly to me, that in yeah, that latter times, that was the one I was looking at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now the Spirit says expressly that in later or latter times, some will depart from the faith. That word literally is in Greek is uh, apostasia, and apostasy is a falling away into false teaching. He says that some will apostatize, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats or foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So he's, he men, even mentions a couple of doctrines going to be taught by these people that fall away from the truth, that apostatize. They're going to say you can't get married and that you have to, can't, can't eat certain kinds of food. Now that, came, that, that was fulfilled closer to New Testament times by the Gnostics, but it certainly is fulfilled 
in the teachings of the Catholic Church that were, quote-unquote, developed some centuries later, wasn't it? In forbidding people to marry and can't eat meat, can't do this, can't eat this food, abstain from these things. Paul says those are doctrines of demons, and they're not the teaching of the truth. He said they're developed by people who have fallen away from the truth. Now, I'm only pointing out to you what Paul says his view of church history was going to be. It wasn't going to be a doctrine of development of these all these different kinds of masses and all these vestments and incense and all of bringing back the priesthood and celibacy, all of that kind of stuff. Paul says that the truth had been delivered in the first century, once, once for all delivered. Once for all time. And that when people came along later, they were going to, they were going to change it, he said for sure. He, he said they're going to change it, but he pictured it as a falling away, not as a development. Now, I, is that does that sound clear to you, Gary? Am I making my point clear there that people well, should remember about what they're seeing in church history? You well, can't go you can't go back to the fifth and sixth centuries or the Middle Ages and find a practice that we should be following in the New Testament based on that. They may have done it right. They may not have done. It. People in the Middle Ages may have done things right. They may not have done things right. How are we going to know whether what they did in the Middle Ages is correct or not by going back? to the apostles' teaching. So people in today, they may be doing things right. They might not be doing things right. How do I know? Well, the point of this show is we call you back to the New Testament. You could come visit here this morning at Savona Boulevard, and you might look around and say, well, I don't think that that's correct. I don't think what they're doing is right. Well, my question to you would be, show, how do you know that? Is yeah. it because you don't like it or because you didn't grow up with that? Or is it something in the New Testament? And if it's something in the New Testament, we, we want you to point that out. We're welcome. We welcome you to do that. We'll go look at that with you. John 12, like, 48, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Now, I can't see that Jesus' words have changed in the last 2,000 years. Right, right. Now, now, going back to Jerry's original question about a requiem mass, a requiem mass is a particular kind of a mass that's celebrated for the dead. And we want, I want to talk in just a moment about another connection to that with indulgences and so forth, the different kinds of masses. And they did that at John F. Kennedy's funeral because he was a, a, a Roman Catholic. I don't know if he was a practicing Roman Catholic as much as some people in his family, or perhaps he may have been, uh, but he was. He, that was one of the issues of his campaign. I was old enough to remember when he ran for president that one of the issues of that campaign in 1960 is that he was a Roman Catholic, and as a Roman Catholic, he would have to follow what the Pope said and not what the Constitution said. You know, and you can evaluate whether that was a real issue or not. But it was a real issue to a lot of people back then. I can tell you because I was alive. Now Joe Biden's a Roman Catholic, but. The issue with him is he doesn't follow Roman Catholic teaching on many in many areas, and so, you know, he's a uh, he's a good Catholic to the press because he doesn't follow Roman Catholic teachings. Other Roman Catholics are bad Roman Catholics because they follow Roman Catholic teaching on issues like abortion and birth control and things like that, and so those are bad Catholics to the press. But Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi are good Catholics because they. Don't follow Roman Catholic teaching. Well, now, that's an, odd, that's an oddity of how things are twisted around, but that's how it is. Well, there are some practices of the Catholic Church that I would agree are scriptural. Well, so said, how, how do you know that? Well, you go through the Bible and you, you find out about that. You go the Bible and find and out. Some, some moral teaching is right and some of it's incorrect. But we're not going to judge it. Well, they're Roman Catholics. They must be sincere, the good religious people, because they're sincere. I don't know that. I, th I know plenty of Roman Catholics who aren't sincere, just like I know plenty of Baptists who aren't sincere. Then that doesn't matter at all as to whether they're correct in their teaching or not, whether they're sincere. Some people are sincerely wrong. The question is, what's the Bible say? Now, then you're going to be judged yourself based upon your sincerity and your belief. Both things are going to judge you, uh, not just whether you're sincere about what you well, believe. Well, it's going to come back down to the, what Jesus says, the word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. And right. if, you're, if you're not following his word on whatever respect you come up for judgment, you have to recognize where the judgment's going to come down. Right. Now, uh, going back a little bit further in this, a little bit deeper in this, Jerry, 
as far as the requiem mass. Most of these masses are connected to indulgences in some way. And indul the Catholics teach that there's an intermediate state between your death and heaven itself, or the or at least the final place of, of judgment. There's an intermediate state called purgatory. The New Testament teaches that it's Hebrews 9:31. It's appointed unto man once to die, and then comes the judgment. So the New Testament teaches that once you die, your fate is sealed. You will be judged for what you did, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. We will be judged for the things done in the body, whether they are good or bad. So we're going to be judged, and that's a scary thought, by what we do while we're alive in our body, whether it's good or bad. And that includes belief and faith and all those other things. It's not a list a listing of all the good things you've done and balancing out against the... I'm not talking about salvation by works here, but the Bible says we're saved. We're going to be judged by the things done in the body, 1 Corinthians 4, about verse 12 or so. It's also Romans 2 and beginning around verse 5 or 6, too. Yes, you see the but same thing. But in accordance thing. with the hardness of your heart, impertinent heart, you're treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath. That's judgment. And revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuing in doing good for glory and honor and immortality but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Right. Now, the, 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 that's correct. So, but the point I'm making is that Catholics teach that there's an intermediate state of, called purgatory. So that, and we all work, have concerns about this if we're religious. Well, what that person there, you know, uh, they, they, they were at their mistress's house. And they had a heart attack there at their mistress's house, and they died uh, in the middle of having an affair. And yet now we still want good old dad to be able to go to heaven, right? And so it's just this natural pull so that there's a second chance. And the Catholics looked in some of the apocryphal books, and they it's still doubtful in this case, but they figured out that there indeed could be a second chance. This place is called purgatory, which is related to purging your sins. And so how it works, Gary, is this. Once you die, you go, if you're not been a good person and committed venial sins, which are they would consider smaller sins, they list they categorize sins by moral and venial. And I'm not sure who makes this distinction. Well Catholic the Catholic Church makes these distinctions. The Bible doesn't make this distinction. The Catholic Church makes a distinction between mortal and venial sin. These venial sins can be worked off. So you go to like a work, a work program, as it were, and you go to this place of punishment. And you spend so many, whatever it is, years or whatever it is, in this place of punishment, suffering. And your suffering there then slowly removes the sins, depending on how bad you've been. It removes those sins. And once then your sins have been purged in purgatory, then you can be released from this state of purgatory and go to a place of blessing, or we would call heaven, or at least a place of paradise in the Bible. There's various views of this. Now, the Bible teaches nothing of the sort. It pictures in Luke 16 that when Lazarus died and the rich man died, Jesus said one went to a place of torment and one went to a place of blessing, and there was no crossing over. One of the main points made in the Bible is that once, that, once Lazarus and this rich man, one good, one evil, died, there was no crossing over between the two gulfs. There was a great gulf between these two places. It couldn't be crossed. Nor could they go back into the life, into life and fix things that were wrong. Couldn't go back and fix anything. They couldn't even go back and fix it for somebody else. Couldn't back and fix it for somebody else. But now here's what the Catholic Church, though, teaches. That uh, if you will pay a certain amount of money to the church to have a mass said, you can go to the church, pay a certain amount of money, depending on the circumstance, and the church will have a mass for this dead person. And they will say a mass. And that removes so many years of punishment from your loved one. So if you've got a good old Uncle Joe that's had several affairs, you want to get him into heaven, you would go repeatedly, pay your money. They would say the mass for the dead, a mass for the dead. And that would then remove so many, um, so it, would give him, it would give him so many indulgences that he could get out of purgatory and into heaven faster. 
That's why you say certain Hail Marys for the dead. You can go for the dead and say certain Hail Marys, get them out faster. And, and this is a primary reason that Martin Luther broke with the Catholic exactly. Church. Exactly. That you kind of buy your way into heaven, or at least by doing these works of saying Hail Marys and, and lighting candles. When I was, I was very, very ill as a child, a couple of times, and my Catholic grandmother, I was told, would go and pay the priest to say a mass for me so I, would be, I wouldn't die. And then if I did die, I'd be saved. And she lit candles all around her house and prayed to the candles and so forth and so on. Now, she did those things not because she was a bad person. She did them because she sincerely thought they would help me. Uh, but uh, but there's, nothing there's nothing in the Bible, Bible that says this is how you deal with this. And there's nothing in the Bible about paying indulgences to get out of purgatory and get into heaven faster or slower. That's the problem with the whole the whole system. So part of the reason they're doing a mass, may, and I'm not sure, I can't verify at the moment, Gary, on the top of my head, I can't verify that that's part of the reason they did a, a requiem mass for John F. Kennedy, or whether that's part of the requiem mass, is part of this indulgence is saying masses for the dead. And this is a big reason why masses are held every day, and you can go and, you know, I, I don't know the whole thing thing. But as far as I know, I'm representing in a broad sense, accurately, not in detail, what is believed and practiced. Now, all of those kind of things are, are, are outside the scope uh, of the New Testament as far as, uh, as far as what we should be doing and, and how the New Testament says we should handle difficulties and problems and so forth. That's the... Um, I'm looking up something, Gary, sorry. Uh, that's the problem that I had with it. I mentioned a moment ago this verse about uh, judgment, and I, I knew it in the back of my head, I knew I'd given you the wrong, the wrong reference here. But if you will look in second, it's in, in the book of 2 Corinthians, I believe. 2 Corinthians 5 and 10, is that the one? Yes, that's the verse I'm looking at. I think it said 1 Corinthians 4. Yeah. I, I, I knew I'd given you the wrong reference here. I have it up if you want to read it. Go ahead. Well, go ahead and read it. Uh, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Yes, this was something that would happen at, at, the, res, at the coming of Christ. We're going to be, the judgment or the execution of the punishment is going to be carried out. So uh, there it is. Now, you've got all these Protestants teaching this very Sunday morning that nothing you can do could ever have any impact on your salvation. Well, right there it says that's not true. Well, We're that, going to be judged for the things done in the body. And, oh, well, works can't save you. Well, some works can, can certainly condemn you, and it's what you do in the body, and they can save you. But now, can works or doing good things without the blood of Christ save you? Well, the answer, of course, to that is no. So nothing you can do can save yourself just by doing it. But you certainly have an impact. What you do certainly has an impact upon your final judgment. Okay. Get repeated again in Romans 2 and verse 6. Right. Who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Right. Basically, this, is not, this doesn't appear just once in the New Testament. It right. appears... Several places. Yeah, so well, Ephesians 6, 8, whatever, whatever anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord. Okay? So that, yeah. there, that's the, there's just a lot of that kind of stuff. And it's ignored because of a, of a uh, false understanding, perhaps, maybe true, of Martin Luther's teaching about salvation by works. I think it's been completely misunderstood and taken to extreme, extreme levels by modern reform teaching and so forth. You know, Gary. I, well, that's another subject altogether. You want to change subjects? I got a, I can, interesting subject. <laughs> we got to about change. ten minutes. Well, I just happened to, I just happened to think, I happened to think I'd set this article aside here, uh, something to think about here. That. Well, I was thinking about judgment, Mike. How often okay. does the Bible talk about judgment? You know, John twelve forty eight uh, is pretty clear that there's going to be a judgment. We just read, read Romans two and and second the second Corinthians passage. You know. My impression is when I read the older sources, there was a there was a lot of teaching in the past about the coming judgment. And, you know, that judgment or a belief in that judgment and an understanding of that judgment seems to me to have a, a great deal of impact on our society. 
because if if you're not looking forward to a judgment, uh, an error, you know, something that is errorless. In other words, that judgment is not going to be mistaken. That judgment is going to be a true and accurate judgment, and you won't be able to hide anything from it. That idea that we will all stand before God, whoever we are, and be judged by God for the things that we did or have done, uh, is is critical in our society. Is keeping keeping law and order, keeping people safe, keeping uh, things that you know make life here on Earth uh, tolerable. Right. And when we lose that, society goes into somewhat of a you know, you think of it, if a criminal can do anything they want and depend on earthly judgment to put them away, they got the odds for them. Mm-hmm. Not, not many murders are actually solved. 40% are solved, I think. Some people say as much as 60% of murders are solved. In some places, that's really relatively low. But in other places, it's a lot. It's a lot. Less. And, and that's better than it used to be in the past. Yes. And all the oh well, serious crimes is something like only forty percent are ever oh anybody's ever brought to tr- trial or solved. And of course, some of those are fault solved falsely. It isn't very high. You got a good chance of getting away with murder, literally. Okay? On earth. On earth, but you don't have a good chance of getting away with it. Right. I mean, I mean, there are examples where <laughs> the, the earthly rule doesn't work. I mean, Naboth and his vineyard was one of them. You know, mm-hmm. you know, you know. Witnesses were hired to lie about him, lie and he was put to put death put falsely. To death. But when it came to God, where is Naboth and where is Jezebel? And this is and this is one reason why I encourage people to take to not throw away the judgment of God or wrath of God or the idea of hell, because when you look at the real world, and you may find yourself here someday. There's not always justice on earth, but from the teaching of the Bible, I can assure you that. Justice will be done. And so you can rest assured if you're a Bible believer. You can have some confidence. People want closure. I don't think you get closure in this world about a lot, a lot of things, Gary. Maybe right. most of the big things you don't. Uh, but you can rest assured that God knows how to bring justice and punishment to murderers, rapists, molesters, criminals of all sorts. He knows how to bring justice to those people far better than you ever could, both in this world and the next world. But it's true from the book of Ecclesiastes. Sometimes the wicked just basically enjoy life and get away with it. I was reading an article the other day, a side issue to this, sort of related. (laughs) From the standpoint of us Christians, we tend to think, oh, the people who don't believe the Bible, you know, they're miserable and they're sad and they got these terrible lives and we got to teach them that, you know, they could, they just come to Christ, they could be happy and fulfilled like me. No, that's not really true in most cases. People that don't believe the Bible, don't care about God, they're not miserable because of that. They're drinking and partying, enjoying themselves, having sex whenever they want with whoever they want. They, from, in their mind, they're enjoying life. They, they don't have to get up on Sunday morning and do all these things. They have to pay attention. They can lie, curse, swear. They can do whatever they want, whenever they want, and they don't feel that anybody can stop them from doing that. And to a lot of people, that's pure heaven. That's joy. So, no, the, the benefit of Christianity is not that you'll be happy and you won't be happy if you're not. There's an element of truth in that. But Christianity benefits you because you're trying the true joy of God. It's true joy, not false, phony joy. Well, but I can assure you, let me one quick, Jerry. I can assure you that if you're a Christian, whatever problems you're having, whatever injustice you face, whatever things have gone wrong with you, this is the worst it's going to ever be for you. However bad you think you got it, this is the worst it's ever going to be. But if you're not a Christian and you're enjoying life and living it all up, I can assure you that this is the the best best it's ever going to be for you. So you better enjoy it because it doesn't get any better for you once you leave this earth. You know, Uncle Joe, that's the philander and the adulterer and and uh, does all the wicked stuff, and he dies uh, uh, suffering from cancer, and you say, well, at least he's not suffering anymore. You need to rethink that. Because he just, as they say, went from the frying pan to the fire as a wicked man. And, and then, there, you know, and, and some people just get the, ben- get the benefit in this life, and everything goes swell, swell for them. And uh, the Bible doesn't pitch the rich as suffering. 
picture the richest suffering a lot of the time. Well, in reality, I think you have to compare 75 or 80 or 90 years on this earth compared to eternity. What is that? Right. Uh, so whatever joy you're having, it's not that long. It's not that long. Whatever suffering you're having, it's not that long. This is this is why I, this is one of my tremendous objections to suicide. Uh, if you think you're getting out of trouble with suicide, how mistaken are you? Yeah, it's a tragic, tragic, tragic. It's tragic. Thing. It just it breaks my heart when I think about what what people have done in in committing suicide. Yeah, you're going to punish somebody. Well, you you know you do punish those who are left. There's probably nothing worse for someone than to live after a loved one has killed themselves the, the pain you put if you if you're intending to hurt somebody by committing suicide you um you you're you're going to accomplish your purpose but when i think about this judgment and i think about appearing before god that's also one one of the things that impresses me most is is people who are committing suicide to avoid pain in this life uh you know, if, if you're not a Christian, and it, it's just, it's like you say, it's out of the frying pan into the fire. But we don't, we don't take the, you know, our society no longer takes a, a final judgment seriously, as far as I can tell. In general, we do not believe as a society yeah. in the final judgment. Well, we've been taught by so-called Christian religion and since the 20, early 20th century. That's what the social gospel is about. That hell is here on earth and heaven is here on earth. And so the real heaven is when you have all these social welfare programs that make life heavenly for people and psychological counseling. And hell is when they don't have access to these things. This is what so many people's religion is and so forth. Yes, yeah, so, uh, John texted in about the, the sheep and the goats parable that here at the judgment scene, uh, Christ, Matthew 25, Christ separates the sheep from the goats. We're all kind of mingled in here together in this life. But at the judgment, Christ separates the two groups apart. Jesus, and se- Jesus, and that's the that's judgment is separation. It's, you know, that kind of thing. Jesus says in Matthew seven thirteen, enter by the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Right, right. Uh, He—that's another warning. You've said many times, and this is absolutely right. The the person that spoke most about the final judgment or hell in the in the New Testament was Jesus Himself. Well, in the whole Bible, there's not many. Yes, yes, that's right. The the other parable, and John just texted this, and I try appreciate it. John is the parable about the wheat and the tares. The the wheat wheat and tares are when they come up in the ground. It's amazing if you grow a garden. If you plant carrots, weeds that look like carrots grow up with it. If you plant corn, <laughs> weeds that look like corn grow with it. It's weird how that happens so much of the time. And so weed and tares are, are like that, that the tares look like the young weed. And Jesus says you've got to leave them alone, let them grow until you can see which what. Then, you can, then later you can separate them. And at the judgment, they're separated from each other. Because as they grow, they bear different fruit and they look differently. We can't always tell in people... What we got—that's part of our the frailty of human judgment. Why I'm warned against that, but we can preach the word to people, and the word can separate people out, and that's correct. They will be separated at the judgment time. You and I don't get to do the judging. We don't know what people are like. God will do the judging. This is the good and the bad part of the judgment day. The good and the bad part of the judgment day. The deeds—that's the way God sees what's in our heart by what we do. Basically, you, I cannot see your faith. You can tell me I believe in Jesus all day long, but I can't see anything or I can't no. understand that until I see yeah, what you right. do. And then you're still going to be limited to some degree. Yes. Now, I told someone the other day, I was asking about something, and I got we got to wrap this up. Your time's yeah, about gone. But we're, we're, I got a sermon I preached a couple years ago called A Fearful Servant. You can look it up on the website, wearejustchristians.com. And it's about the way that I view my, my myself as a servant who is very afraid of the master. Now, that may not be good, may be bad, you may not like that, but go look it up, Fearful Servant. Well, our time is gone today on the show. We really appreciate you tuning in. Hope you'll take a look at our website, wearejustchristians.com, and hope and you'll find lots of resources there, including recordings. 
And we'd like to invite you to come and be with us this morning at 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard. 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard. It's just at the corner of California and Savona on the southwest side. You'll find our little building back there, and we'd love to have you with us. Uh, you'll find ordinary Christians of all kinds. We're just going to try to follow the New Testament, and we invite you to come, and we're not going to ask you for money. How do you like that? Thanks for listening this morning. May God bless you this week as you continue to try to serve him. Thank you. WPSL, Port St. Lucie.